And so the book of Habakkuk, in chapter number one, and um, you're going to see anguish here in the prophet uh, Habakkuk. Most prophets would speak to the people for God. They came to the people, they had a message from God, and they would speak to the people. But this prophet Habakkuk is speaking to God for the people. So let's see what he says, and especially concerning what we're talking about tonight. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. How do you see it? We oftentimes talk about feeling a burden or carrying a burden, but how do you see it? He's looking at it with his own two eyes. He's looking out and he's seeing what he's talking about. And the next three verses tells you what he sees. O Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou wilt not hear. Even cry out unto thee of violence. And thou wilt not say. Why dost thou show me iniquity? And cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me. And there that raise up strife and contention. And therefore the law is slack. And judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. And therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. In three verses he's told us this burden that he's looking at. He tells us about the violence that is in the land. He tells about the iniquity. And again in verse 3, spoiling and violence. The strife and the contention. How that the law is slacked and judgment doth never go forth. And how that the wicked doth compass about the righteous. It looks bad. It looks horrible. But then in verse number five, he gives us some hope. Look at what he says. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe though it be told you. What kind of a work is he talking about? Go to chapter number three and verse number two. This is the prayer of the prophet, and in the prayer of the prophet we see the work. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath Remember mercy. And the key phrase in verse number two is revive thy work in the midst of the years. Revival. What is revival? We're having a revival crusade here in Ten Mile Baptist Church for these few days. What is revival? I think a lot of people Talk about revival, and a lot of people even have a desire. They want revival, but many times they misunderstand what revival is. So it's hard to have revival if you don't know what revival is. What is revival? One of the best definitions that I've ever read, and I've read every book I can get on this subject. I love reading about revival. I've read every book I can get on the revivals of yesterday. And I love reading about them, but the truth of the matter is I want to see revival in my day. I want to see revival in my generation. So what is it? Or, or excuse me, Charles Finney. I don't agree with everything that Finney wrote and Finney said, but this is one of the greatest 
uh, definitions of revival. Listen carefully to what Finney said. Revival is nothing more than a new beginning of obedience to God. Just in the case of a converted sinner, the first step is a deep repentance, a breaking down of the heart, a getting down into the dust before God with deep humility and the forsaking of sin. That's a little bit long. Let me give it to you again. Revival is nothing more than a new beginning of obedience to God. Just in the case of a converted sinner, the first step is a deep repentance, a breaking down of the heart, a getting down into the dust before God with deep humility and a forsaking of sin. Hey, is it any wonder that we don't hear a lot in our generation about real revival? Many people, if you ask them, what is revival? They're, in the average Baptist church, this would be your, your most prevalent answer. Most people would tell you that revival is seeing a whole lot of people get saved. Well, hey, all of us who love God want to see a whole bunch of people get saved. But that's not revival. That's evangelism. Now, we're for evangelism. We promote evangelism. I have a heart. This is my heart. I want, I'm an evangelist. I want to see people get saved. But that's not revival. I preached in Modesto, California. And um, the first time I was there, a large church, 3,000, 3,500 people. The pastor was a great man. He's not there any longer. He's gone to a different church, but he was a great man. But he was more of a teacher than he was a preacher. And there's nothing wrong with teachers. We need teachers. The Bible said God gave the church some teachers and some pastors and some evangelists. We need teachers. But he was more of a teacher, but they were sowing and watering and sowing and watering, but they were never reaping. They were never seeing a harvest. But he did believe in the ministry of the evangelist. And so he brought us in for a special one-day meeting. And on Sunday morning, uh, in the first service, over 80 people came, walked down the aisle, 80 adults walked down the aisle to give their hearts to Christ. The pastor was standing down front, big old tears, just running down his face. And he looked up to me and he said, what do we do? And I said, well, let's get some help down here and help these people that want to get saved. And we, we went back out for two crusades, uh, four-day meetings, and both times over four Hundred people came to Christ. It was, a, it was a great teaching church, but they, they did not mock the ministry of the evangelists. They complimented the ministry of the evangelists, and we saw people saved. But just because 400 people got saved does not mean they had revival. That means 400 lost people came to Christ. I told you this morning, I had the privilege to speak for Dr. Adrian Rogers at Bellevue Baptist Church in the 1990s twice, uh, three days each time, and they had what they call Celebrate America. It was a big patriotic event near July the 4th. And um, they, they would have uh, an event on Friday night and had a 7,000-seat auditorium. It was all uh, theater seats, and so they knew how many people were there, and they would fill it up. You had to have a ticket to get in. And uh, they didn't cost anything, but you had to have a ticket. They have 7,000 on Friday night. They have 7,000 on Saturday morning matinee and 7,000 on Saturday night. The first service on Sunday morning would be about 4,000, and the second service would be full, 7,000. 
And then they finished it out on Sunday night and another 7,000. And I would give my story, and during the middle of this um, event that they put on, they had over 2,000 cast members, members, and but Dr. Rogers was evangelistic. He wanted to see pe lost people come to Christ. And right in the middle of that event, I would give my story, and then I would give an invitation, and both times we saw over 500 people get saved. Who wouldn't want to see 500 people get saved? But just because 500 people got saved does not mean that the church had revival. That's evangelism. Revival does not come to and through lost people. Revival comes to and through God's people. Nothing more than a new beginning of obedience to God. Just in the case of a converted sinner, the first step is a deep repentance. I talked about that this morning, and we're going to talk about it again tonight. At the turn of the last century, a man by the name of William Booth. William Booth was a founder of the Salvation Army. And this was a time when they first started the Salvation Army. It was a hotbed for revival and evangelism. They weren't just feeding people and clothing people and, and housing people. They were winning people to Christ. And they were seeing re revival. They were seeing great things happen. He gave, this man gave what he thought to be the perilous conditions of America in his day. And listen to these. I don't have time to give them all to you tonight. But these are just a few of the things that he saw in America in his day. He said, number one, you have religion without the Holy Spirit. That's what he was speaking about a little while ago. Religion is everywhere. Today, churches met all over America. Churches that are free and want to worship the Lord. And we had church here today. And we're having church tonight. We're going to have church tomorrow night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night, the Lord willing. I don't believe we need the government telling the church what they ought to be able to do and not to do. I believe God's people ought to be obeying God. Thank you. That didn't cost you anything. But he said you have religion without the Holy Spirit. I've often said if the Holy Ghost of God was to come in the average Baptist church on Sunday morning and take over the service, it would frighten most of our people to death. You want to know why? Because we have everything programmed. We have everything planned. We know what's going to happen before it even happens. And we know when to say amen. We, need, we know when to stand up. We know when to sit down. We know it all. But what about if we came to church some Sunday morning and we said, God, what would you like to do today? Wouldn't that be novel? This is your church. These are your people. This is your word. What would you like to do today, God? Well, he said you have religion without the Holy Spirit. He said you have Christianity without Christ. What does that mean? You're teaching that there's all kinds of ways to go to heaven. But friend, there's not all kinds of ways to go to heaven. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say I'm one of many ways or one of some way. Or, or, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he said in, this, in his generation that you have Christianity without Christ, number three. He said you have forgiveness without repentance. And I told you, we're going to talk about this subject here in closing in a few more moments, but just suffice it to say for now that God's love is not some syrupy, sentimental thing. God's love costs him his only son. God's love costs him his son hanging on an old rugged cross. 
suffering and bleeding and dying for your sins and for my sins and for the sins of the whole world. He said, you have forgiveness without repentance. He said, then number four, you have politics without God. And boy, if this has ever been a day when that was true, it's now. For politics without God, it's going to take more than a president at the end of his speech saying, God bless America, in order for God to bless America. We might not ought to be saying, God bless America. We might ought to be saying, God save America. He said then, number five, he said, you have heaven without hell. You know what he's talking about. Preachers preach about heaven, but they never warn anybody about hell. Did you know our Lord in his earthly ministry had more to say about the subject of hell than he had to say about heaven? You know why? Because broad is the road that leads to destruction. And there's so many that are on that road that are going to hell. You very seldom turn on a television and hear a preacher preach on hell. They preach on money. Sometimes when I can't sleep, I get up and turn on the television. You can hear, you can hear everything at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'm telling you, there are some nuts on at 3 o'clock in the morning. And there always this one nut is always saying, he, I don't know where he came up with this figure, but it's always $1,000. He wants me to send him $1,000. He wants me to plant the seed. I'm saying to him, you send me $10,000. One preacher said, if you put your hand on the TV, you can get the power. I said, you put your hand in the back of that TV, you can really get the power. <laughs> but these were the conditions of America in William Booth's day. Folks, you know I'm telling you the truth. Whatever he was saying in his day, it's a hundred times, maybe a thousand times magnified today in our generation. Does it bother you? Does it bring conviction? Does it concern you? And where is the anguish? Where is the weeping? Where, where are the tears tonight over a nation that is on a toboggan slide to hell? Does it bother you at all? Does it grieve you? Does it concern you? I've said so many times that I don't think it bothers the devil a whole lot what we do at church. We can come here and shout and sing and weep and give and preach and all that's great. But friend, if we're not going to take a stand for God when we leave the doors of the building, then he's not been bothered by what we did at the building. So let me give you another revivalist tonight. And this is the one that we'll end up with. R.A. Toy, Reuben Toy. A revivalist of yesterday. Now, Toy wrote mostly about personal revival. I would love nothing more than for your precious pastor to come to me after the Wednesday night service and say, Tim, God, send our church a measure of revival. I, that would thrill me. But before it happens to the church, as a congregation, as a people, it has to happen to us as individuals. I'm talking about all of us. Before we can see revival in our homes, it has to happen to the individuals and in the church and in our nation. And friend, I've got news for you tonight. I, I, I don't know what your hope is in tonight, but there, there is no political party that's going to save this country. No, no political party is going to save America. Okay, who it is? 
I believe you ought to be registered to vote, and I believe you ought to vote. Don't tell me how much you love America if you don't vote. He said, well, Tim, I'm not always sure who to vote for. If you'll see me out in the foyer after the service, I'll help you with that. <laughs> but our hope is not in a political party. So Tory writes about personal revival. I'm going to give you three things tonight. that he talked about in this subject of personal revival. He said, number one, you must become thoroughly dissatisfied with yourself. Now, what did he mean by that? Become thoroughly dissatisfied with yourself. It means that, it means you got to quit thinking that you've arrived. You got to quit thinking that you're it and that you, that you're, that you've gone as far as you need to go in your spiritual walk. None of us in this room have gone as far as we need to go. And there are people listening to my voice right now and you've been saved for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and you have not been back to an altar since the day you got saved. You excuse me, friend, I wouldn't hurt you for anything in the world, but there's none of us in this room tonight that is so right with God that we haven't needed to be at an old-fashioned altar in the last five years. We're kidding ourselves. We're fooling ourselves if we think that's the case. And that's what Tori was talking about. Become thoroughly dissatisfied with yourself. It goes against the grain of everything we're taught today. We're taught that we're to, we're to brag on each other and pat each other on the back and tell each other how great we are and how wonderful we are. Well, the truth of the matter is, if we're so wonderful, if we're so great, why did Jesus even have to die for? I'll tell you why he had to die, because we're not so great. He had to die because we're sinners. And then when you got saved, it didn't not make you perfect. There's still not a time in your life when you haven't sinned since you got saved and you need to come clean with God and all of us need to be broken and weeping and confessing before God. Quit thinking you've arrived. Quit thinking you're it. Quit thinking that you're the spiritual giant and that God couldn't really get along without you. God was getting along without us before we were here, and he will be getting along without us after we're dead and gone. He wants to use us, but we have to make ourselves usable. And that means humbling ourselves before God. Thoroughly dissatisfied with yourself. Number two, he said, set your face like a flint toward a sweeping transformation of your own life. Again, that's a little long, but listen to what he said. Set your face like a flint. In other words, you're not looking to the right, you're not looking to the left, you're not looking to see what they're doing, what they're doing. Set your face like a flint toward a sweeping transformation of your own life. In other words, begin to believe that God is going to do this work in your life, in your heart. God's going to do this work in you. When I came back from, when I came back from Vietnam and uh, got my heart and my life right with God, Connie and I got married, and, and then it wasn't long after we were married that I began to believe that God was calling me to preach. And uh, actually, the last thing I wanted to do in my life was to be a preacher. I was raised in a preacher's home, and the last thing I wanted to do was be a preacher. 
And uh, I thought about getting involved in politics. Some people met with me when I came back to Vietnam, but my dad told me, son, they're just trying to use you. And so I didn't do that. Later on, I did get elected to the town board at Bell Rive. Now, that's a big deal. And, uh, and I got elected to the town board. Now, it's easy to get elected when nobody runs against you. But I didn't want to be a preacher at all. But God wouldn't let it, let it go. And I went forward on a Sunday night in my dad's church, and I said to my dad, I said, Dad, I believe God is calling me to preach. And my dad said, son, that doesn't surprise me at all. And uh, he turned around and told the people that I'd come to announce my call to preach. And then my dad did a very foolish thing. He said, two weeks from tonight, Tim will preach his first sermon right here. My dad was from the old school. He believed that if you were called to preach, that you ought to preach. And uh, so for two weeks, I studied, and I prayed, and I worked, and I planned, and I prayed, and I studied, and I worked. I thought I had enough material to preach for an hour. I think I preached for seven or eight minutes that night. I haven't done that very often since then. And then I, I preached around southern Illinois and, and southern Indiana, St. Louis, area, and God opened up doors, and then I began to believe God wanted me to pastor. There was a church in Pinckneyville that called me to be their pastor. Oak Grove Missionary Baptist Church voted and called me to be their pastor, and everybody thought I was going to go pastor that church. It was a good church, uh, had all their bills paid, had a nice parsonage, and offered me a nice salary, and everybody thought I was going to go, but then God said no. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it behooves us to listen to God not get ahead of God and not try to plan things out for ourselves, but to wait upon the Lord. And God said no, and everybody kind of thought I was making a mistake. My own dad told me, said, son, an opportunity for a young preacher like this doesn't come along that often. But I told dad, I said, I just don't believe that's where I'm supposed to go. It was a couple of weeks later. I was preaching a revival meeting at New Salem Baptist Church. New Salem Baptist Church is a church where both of my parents got saved, both of them got baptized, my dad was, they got married in that church. My dad was ordained to preach in that church. My dad preached his first message in that church, and my dad preached his last message in that church, almost 60 years later. And I was preaching a revival. Donnie Rector, Donnie's not here tonight, is he? Donnie Rector was leading the music, and he and I were out behind the church before the service praying by a great big old oak tree. When we got through praying. There were two men waiting there to talk to me and, and had a few minutes before we went into church and th their names was Ray Daly and Harold Cross and they asked me if I would be interested in coming and being their pastor at Delafield Baptist Church. Now, Delafield at that time was about to close their doors. They were averaging 19 on Sunday morning and um, and I had just turned down a church run 125 to 150 on Sunday morning. You know if you turn down something, God's going to send you something bigger and better. That's how we think. I looked at them and I very piously said, well, I'll pray about it. I had no intention of praying about it. But that night, God would not let me sleep. And the next day, I knew that as well as my name was Tim Lee, that God wanted me to go pastor Delafield Baptist Church. I knew that in my own heart. That's where I was supposed to go. I called Ray and Harold, and I said, I believe God wants me to come and be your pastor. They said, that's what we thought. 
Delafield Baptist Church, we were a member of the local association of 26 churches at that time. Out of 26 churches, you can go read it in the, in the little booklets they used to print. They still have them around. And out of 26 churches, we were last in everything. We were last in baptism. We were last in giving. We were last in membership. We'd go to the annual associational meetings and say something like this. Pray for us that so we can hold our own. Problem was, we didn't have anything to hold. They were running 19 on Sunday morning. The average offering was $54 a Sunday. My salary was $35 a week. But I knew that's where God wanted me to be. Now, God never sends you anywhere just to sit around and do nothing. When God sends you to a place, he sends you there for a reason and a purpose. I got to studying the history of Delafield. In all the years that we could find, in all the minutes in the history of that church that we could find, they had never had 75 in Sunday school. At least they had not had 75 in a long time that we could find. I don't constantly live by goals, but if you don't ever set any goals, you won't ever reach any goals. So I got to studying, I got to praying, I got up one Sunday and I said, folks, I want us to set a goal. I gave ourselves three months. The last Sunday in October, we're going to have 75 in Sunday school. At first, they just sat there and looked at me. And then they started laughing. Well, that just made me more determined. And I began to preach, and, and little by little, we, those people began to believe it. We, we, they began to have faith, and we began to work 75 and sleep 75 and, and, and eat 75. Everything was 75. You say, well, you think God's interested in numbers? I guess he is. He wrote a whole book in the Bible called Numbers. And word got out in town. People were telling jokes. I'm not talking about lost people. I'm talking about preachers were telling jokes about us going to have 75. Well, I got the last, the last Sunday of October came. And I went to church early that morning, got there before anybody else. And I went down to the altar and I said, God, I believe it would honor you. Our people have worked hard and our people have prayed and we're believing. But I said, God, even if we don't, you say, now, Tim, was that a lack of faith? I don't think so. I, I, I think it's kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're saying, God, can deliver us, will deliver us, but even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to bow down to you, King. And I said, even if we don't have 75, we're still going to honor you, we're still going to serve you, and we're still going to live for you. Well, after a while, the old-timers would get there first, and normally they come in and they go to sit down in their pew. And when I say their pew, <laughs> nobody else better sit in their pew. I say pew. But that morning, there was a new spirit here. And every once in a while, one of them opened up the door. We had a, a dirt and maybe a little bit of gravel on a road. And, and there was, there'd be another car coming, preacher, a big old cloud of dust coming down. Preacher, here comes another car. They were so excited. And that last Sunday in October, we didn't have 75, but we did have 137. Yeah, we had... We had, we had brand new Sunday school classes formed on the spot. They went outside. It was a beautiful day. And then we had church that day, and a ton of people got saved, and a ton of people at the altar, and a spirit of revival was in the air. Well, Sunday night, I was on cloud nine. Monday night, I was on cloud nine. Tuesday night, I was on cloud nine. Wednesday. You know what Wednesday was? It was the first Wednesday of the month of November. 
Now, do you know what we did the first Wednesday of each month? We had business meeting. Every first Wednesday month. It didn't matter whether we had any business or not. We had business meeting. Now, you know with $54 a week coming in, we had a heap of business to take care of. <laughs> well, I was so excited. Now, I, I confess to you, I was so young and so green, but I was excited, man. I was pumped up. And I got up and I told those people, I said, on Wednesday night, I told them, I said, look, if, if we do it one time, we can do it again. And I said, what we've got here isn't going to suffice for what God has for us. We need to think about building. We need to think about a building plan, a building program, a building fund. I didn't know what to say or do. I, did, I, just, I was just winging it. I was excited. I was pumped up. And somebody jumped up and said, uh, build. He said, uh, he said, the bell is about ready to fall through the belfry. We can't even take care of that. I didn't know anything about the bell about ready to fall through the belfry, but Miss Treva, our church secretary and treasurer, she's a godly lady, and she was sitting down front, and she comes to business meeting with a stack of books that thick. She had all the history and all the minutes, the treasury report. She's down there, and she's thumbing through, and she finally said, Brother Lee, could I say something? I said, well, sure. She said, people, right here it is. We voted three years ago to take the bell out of the belfry. We just haven't ever done it. Now, that was the vote in this church I've ever seen. We voted. We just didn't do it after we voted. I was at that church about six months. I got sick. They put me in the hospital. It happened to be over the first Wednesday of the month. My wife comes to the hospital on Thursday morning. I said, honey, did anything happen at business meeting? She started laughing. She's, she's, I said, what happened? She said, they just voted on one thing. I said, what did they vote on? She said, they voted on whether to send their pastor any flyers or not. Thank God the vote was in my favor, amen. <laughs> Saturday, the very next Saturday after that Wednesday night business meeting, we had a crane come from Mount Vernon, and they took that. It was a several hundred pound bell, and if you'd have been standing in the foyer and that thing would have fell, it'd have killed you. They took that thing out. In one year's time, we added on to our building, bought, built a new building, completely paid for it, renovated the old building inside and out, completely paid for it, bought seven acres of property they told us we couldn't buy, and we bought it and paid for it. We started a radio ministry. We started a bus ministry. Our church, Little Delafield Baptist Church, check it out for yourself. That first year, we baptized more people than the other 25 churches put together. You want to know why? Our people had begun to believe God. I think Delafield baptized 56 people that year. You have to go look it up for yourself. I'm not for sure. But it was because they began to believe God. Set your face like a flint. Don't be deterred. People try to throw cold water on your dreams and, and your desires and the call of, that God has on your life. I would have never, ever dreamed that. Someday when God would call me to be an evangelist, I was happy just being a pastor. I was not a good pastor. I was a horrible pastor. Connie doesn't like for me to say that, but I probably ought to be shot for some of the things I did when I was a pastor. But on those five years I pastored, God was getting me ready to be an evangelist. And now I'm in my 42nd year of doing this work, and I don't want to do another work. I feel sorry for you, Pastor. If you knew how good it was to be an evangelist, you would resign tomorrow, and you would come with me on the road. But this vision, this burden, 
that the prophet could see and look out. This is what drives me. This is what compels me. This is what keeps me going. The last thing tonight, and I'm going to be through. I saw you look at your watch, sir. I forgot to tell you, but every time you look at your watch, I automatically add five minutes to my sermon. Whoa, here. That baby's full. Somebody have to clean up the mess I made down here. Mm. Awesome. Anybody want a drink of water? You have to get your own, okay. So here's the last thing tonight that Tori said, and I'm finished. And this is so important. Do a thorough job of repenting. Wow. Now I have quoted. Now these are all men made out of the same flesh that you and I are made out of, but they were great revivalists in their day. Finney and William Booth and Tory. All of them said different things about this subject, but they all weaved this word into what they were saying. Every single one of them talked about repentance. And I told you this morning that repentance is what I call the forgotten doctrine of our generation. He said, do a thorough job of repenting. There's never been a revival, never been a great move of God that didn't have repentance involved. And folks, if we want to see God do something great this week, we're not here to play church. We're not here to play games. Kids over there having fun and waters, that's a great thing. I'm for that, but this is a serious time for us. We're going to have some fun this week and some excitement, but this is serious tonight. If we want to see God do something this week in a great and unique way, and not just something that man contrives up, and not just something that we can put together, but we want to see God move, and all of us, have got to take care of this matter. Every one of us have to get real and honest and serious and not looking at other people's sins. It's easy. It's easy to look around and see what other people are doing wrong. It's easy to point finger at other people, talk about their sin. Black people used to sing an old spiritual, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. We Baptists, we don't sing it like that. It's them, it's them, it's them, O oh Lord. Or if the Methodists would just get right. Or if the Presbyterians would just warm up. Or if the other people just head to the altar. We could have revival. But that's not the way it is. And that's not the way God works. He wants to do it in my heart. He wants to do it in my life. He wants to do it in your heart. And he wants to do it in your life. I'll close with this. And I probably told this story here before, but I like to hear it, so I'm going to tell it again. And then we'll have an invitation time tonight. But, oh my. It was several years ago, Pastor Joe Myers, he's a dear friend of mine. I preached his wife's funeral uh, last year. Brother Joe preached a pastor the same church for 50 years. 50 years. I preached the day that 
he had his 50th anniversary. And that morning, he resigned. They brought in the new pastor, Pastor Daniel Hawtree. He's a good friend of mine. That church is a wonderful church. They they started supporting our ministry, $400 a month in 1981, and never have missed a month. They've been a friend to our ministry. Brother Joe, Pastor Joe, he's a happy man. He's, you never see him down. He's always got a story to tell. He tells more funny jokes than anybody. We called my office one day, and when, when I started talking to him, I could tell that he wasn't the same Joe. He wasn't happy, and he wasn't telling jokes. He, matter of fact, he was crying on the phone. I thought somebody died. I didn't know what had happened. I said, Joe, what is the matter? He said, oh, Brother Tim, he said, I, I need revival. He said, my family needs revival. He said, our church needs revival. He is crying. And uh, I said, Brother Joe, what can I do? He said, I want you to come and preach a revival crusade. By that time, I had already been to that church eight or nine times. And I told him, I remember telling him that day, I said, Brother Joe, I don't want to wear my welcome out. He said, no. He said, I've been praying. that God laid you on my heart. He said, he said, I, I, I want you to come. Well, he said, I said, you know, I'll do it for you. He said, I, I want the Tim Lee Crusade Trio. Rand and Linda and David worked for our ministry for a great number of years, and they were an anointed trio. So I want them to come and do the music. I said, okay. He said, now I want to ask you for a special favor. Now he's still crying. I said, what do you want to ask me for? He said, I want you to come Sunday through Friday. We don't do Sunday through Friday. Crusades is just not, there's no perfect way to be an evangelist. you got to find out what works for you and your family and then do that. And so our crusades are Sunday through Wednesday. And uh, he, he knew that. I said, Brother Joe, you know I don't do Sunday through Friday. He, he's crying now. He said, he said, I know you don't, but I'm begging you. Would you do it for me? I said, Brother Joe, I don't know whether I would do it for anyone else at all, but I would do it for you. Well, then he got happy. We got the date down. We settled on a date. And then he got happy. He quit crying. He said, guess what we're going to do? I said, what are we going to do? He said, we're going to have a tent revival. I hate tents. (laughs) I have a different appreciation for them now than I had then. But friend, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong under a tent. You put a tent up, every nut in the county will come and see you. And they always put them things up in the hottest part of the summer. There's no air blowing, and mosquitoes coming there at nighttime singing nothing but the blood. <laughs> well, I'm very transparent. What you see is what you get. And I, my attitude immediately changed. But Joe talked about it later on. He could tell I wasn't happy. Now, Pastor, I know some evangelists that love to do those tent revivals. I've got a couple friends that they love them. I got one Guy in North Carolina, he's got a tent that'll hold up to 3,000 people. And they're getting ready to set it up in Johnson City. And they'll have 2,000 to 3,000 every night. I'll tell you, I'm for him. I say, go get that guy. I confess to you tonight, I love air conditioning. I don't know who invented it, but they ought to have a holiday named in their honor. Amen. I called the trio into my office after I got off the phone and I said, Brother Joe wants us to come for revival. They got excited. They've been to that church several times. Brother Joe spoiled them rotten. 
I said, guess what we're going to do? They said, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to have a tent revival. You should have seen the smile leave their faces. <laughs> Months on end, before that meeting, the trio and I, we're talking about this tent. We're feeding off each other. We're not liking this tent. We've all four got a bad attitude about the tent. We got on an airplane to fly to Greensboro, North Carolina, and all four of us have got a bad attitude. We're going to go have revival. On Sunday morning, I'm sitting on the platform underneath the tent. At 10 o'clock, it's 87 degrees. I'm sweating. I haven't even got up to preach. I look across the parking lot. There's a beautiful church auditorium, air conditioned. I said to myself, this is dumb. We could have at least had Sunday morning church in the sanctuary. I preached that morning with a bad attitude. Now, God blessed in spite of my attitude, but it wasn't because of me. Sunday night, it was even worse. I was out of my element. I didn't want to be there. This was, it was, I was miserable. I didn't want to be there. Monday morning, I'm in my hotel in downtown Winston-Salem, I'm having my quiet time. I'm minding my own business. Have you ever been minding your own business and God decided to get involved in your business? Deep conviction came in that room. That church, before we ever got to town, had spent over $25,000 in preparation for that meeting. This wasn't a little old funeral tent. This thing, this tent would hold over 2000 they had got the best of everything. They'd had television advertisement, radio advertisement, newspaper advertisement. They'd been having round-the-clock prayer meetings. They'd been having cottage prayer meetings. There was wives praying for their husbands to get saved. There were parents praying for their kids to get saved. On Sunday morning, Brother Joe's at the altar on the sawdust in his suit, and tears are running down his face, and he's praying and begging God for revival. And all I could do was grumble and complain and bellyache about a tent, and God broke my heart. And I confessed, and I got right with God, and I called the trio. They came to my room. They said, Brother Tim, what's wrong? I said, I just got right with God. Would you all like to get right with God? It's easy to ask other people to get right with God when you pay their salary. But no, they were serious, and we had a prayer meeting in the room, and then we go back to church on Monday night. It's amazing how everyone else's attitude gets better when yours gets better. All of a sudden, I wanted to be there. That tent took on a new appearance. And I'm telling you, it turned out to be the most unusual revival crusade I've ever been in. I've never seen such brokenness. I've never seen such conviction. The crowd drew from 1,100 on Sunday morning to 1,300 to 1,500 to 1,800. Other churches were coming and pastors that had not spoke to each other in years because of jealousy and pride, they were confessing to each other and they were getting right with God. Revival was going back into their churches. We closed that meeting out on Friday night. I was scheduled to speak in Monday, on Monday at Bruton Road Baptist Church in Dallas, and then on Monday I was going to Israel. Ed McAteer, the president of Religious Roundtable, had given me an all-expense-paid trip to Israel. I had never been. Brother Joe and I and our staff and people from the revival, they were, they were nice. We didn't get out of church till 11 o'clock. I'm not kidding you. You could count on one hand the people that would leave early. 
People would get to church over an hour ahead of time, just in anticipation to see what was going to happen the next night. And we're at, we're at Susie's Diner on Interstate 40 in Walkertown, North Carolina, at midnight. The meeting is closed. We've closed everything out. And Brother Joe and I got to talking. Maybe we should have went another week. And, I, and Brother Joe said, would you, would you do it? I, I said, Brother Joe, I said, I can't be here Sunday. I, I wouldn't be right to that pastor to cancel him at this short time, but we can come back out on Monday. He said, will you go call? If Ed had let me out of going to Israel, we can come back on Monday. He said, will you call him? I called Ed. He lived in Memphis. It was 11 o'clock. I got him out of bed, but he, when I told him what was happening, he about had a shout and a spell. He said, Brother Tim, you stay right there and have revival. He said, I'll take you to Israel some other time. And he never did do it. <laughs> he died. He's not going to either. <laughs> we went back out. The trio and I went back out on Monday. And the second week was more unusual than the first week. Two different nights. I never even got to preach. Power of God came into that tent so strong, so much conviction, the invitation would break out during the music, during the worship. And Brother Joe and I have talked many times, probably we should have went a third week. Why did it happen? People begin to do a thorough job of repenting. There will be no revival if we're not willing to repent. There will be no revival. There will be no great move of God. We can have church and we can have meetings and it'll be over and it'll go in the history books. I don't want that. I want God to do the unusual. Would you bow your heads tonight? The prophet. Can you see a burden tonight? Can you, with your head bowed, can you see this burden? You look out across your country, your nation. Can you see the violence? and the strife, and the contention, how the wicked compasses about the righteous. Wrong judgment goes forth. You say, well, Tim, that was the Old Testament, and God said that he would do a work in their days that they wouldn't even believe. You say, but that's the Old Testament. Did you know that in Acts chapter number 13, did you know that those same words are found in verse number 41. Listen to this. Behold ye despisers and wander and perish, for I will work a work in your days, a work which ye shall no wise believe, though a man declared unto you. Do you know the same God that was a God in Habakkuk's day, the same God that was a God in Luke's day and in Paul's day, the same God is on the throne today. And I believe that this 2 Chronicles 7.14 is still in the book. I know that was written to the nation of Israel. I get that. I understand. But I believe the same principle applies to America today and to us. As the church of God, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sins and will heal their land. You see, 
it does make us uncomfortable. We don't want to hear it. But if we don't hear it, and we don't do something about it, then we're just going to continue. And we're going to just float downstream and, and coast along and just, just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. You want revival? You want God to do something in your life? I don't know what God wants to do in someone else's life. What's God want to do in my life? Don't look to see what God wants to do to your wife. Don't look to see what God wants to do to your husband. Don't look to see what God wants to do to your pastor and the, the deacons, the, the leadership of the church, the Sunday school teacher. What's God want to do in my heart? So I'm going to ask you right now, just breathe a prayer, something like this. Lord, say something to me. Put your finger on my life, in the area of my life that you want to do a work in. I think that the way we'll close out tonight, I preached to the church, I preached to Christians. That was the intent of this message. And Christians, I think we'll open up this altar tonight around these front steps and around these front seats and we'll have a few verses of invitation and then we'll pray together. And we'll leave here thinking about it. But not just letting your emotions be stirred for a few moments. Take it home with you. And pray. And seek God's face. Maybe someone here tonight that's never been saved. Your life has never ever been changed by the power of God. You understand that it would be hard for you to spiritually know what this message is about if you don't know Christ, if you've never been saved. You understand that God loved you, that he gave his son Jesus Christ to die for you and to pay the price for your sins. And tonight, if you will repent of your sins and turn to Jesus by faith, accept Jesus as your personal Savior, you could leave here tonight on your way to heaven. So when we sing in a few moments, if you want to be saved, I don't want you to come and kneel to the altar. I want you to come to the pastor. And if you're a man, we'll have a man. If you're a lady, we'll have a lady. Take the Bible and show you how you can leave here tonight with your sins forgiven on your way to heaven. Christians, this was for us tonight. I was going to ask you to mind God and come and get along with God at the altar. If God's speaking to you and you want revival, you want God to do something in your heart. And this is your time. Would you stand to your feet? Everyone standing that's able to stand. Brother, sing us a verse or two of invitation and you come right now. No hesitation. Let's do business with God. Come and get along with God tonight. Let's come and get along with God. Lord, I want revival. I want you to do something in my heart. I'm tired of just coasting along. I'm tired of the status quo. I'm tired of just another, just another song, just another prayer, just another sermon. anguish sing that second verse brother let's wait upon the Lord don't rush it don't hurry it don't look to see what someone else is doing 
Help him sing that chorus. Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Father, thank you for speaking to hearts. Thank you for these people that came out on a Sunday night. They could have done a number of other things, just stayed at home. But they came to your house. Lord, I believe the presence of the Holy Spirit has been in this room since the very first song. Lord, we, we desire to have a fresh touch from you. We, we plead. We know we don't deserve mercy. We deserve judgment. We pray for mercy tonight. Your mercy. And God, would you pour your spirit out in these last days in a measure of real revival that we might make an impact in this whole world Everything seems so dark and everything seems so upside down and so confusing. Good is called evil and evil is called good. There's never been a day in my life when that's been more true than it is today. We're in a mess. God, we need you more than we've ever needed. This week, Lord, I pray you will do a work in my life, in my heart, do a work in the heart of all these people. In Jesus' name.